Hey, happy Friday one and all out there. It is February 28th, 2020, and this is the podcast edition of New Mexico in Focus for the week. Got a great show as always for you. It starts with our line panelists, a great group this week, starting with former Lieutenant Governor Diane Dennish. It's been a while since she's joined us. Glad to have her at the table. Also regular Dan Foley, former House Minority Whip and former Senator Diane Snyder. And last, rounding out the table this week, is another one of our regulars, Serge Martinez. He is an associate professor at UNM School of Law. And they kick things off this week by transitioning straight out of the legislative session that just wrapped up into the next political season here in New Mexico. That is the 2020 elections. Lots to consider here right now. It's a matter of figuring out exactly who the candidates are going to be. But some interesting themes and issues that have already started to shape up. The line kicks it off with a look forward to November of this year. The governor might still be deciding which bills to sign, but for the 112 women and men who spent the past weeks legislating, it's election season. Democrats control both the Senate, I'm sorry, the State House and the Senate, building large majorities in that 2018 blue wave. Republicans are resolute in their desire to make a dent in those advantages, though, and even progressive Democrats are looking to unseat some relatively conservative members of their own party. That's issue number one for our line opinion panel. We're joined by line regular and former New Mexico Heist Minority Whip, Daniel Foley. Former state senator and another line regular Diane Snyder is with us. And it's great to have former Lieutenant Governor Diane Dennish back with us again after so long. Good to see you. And rounding up the table, another line regular the UNM Law School Professor Serge Martinez. And Lieutenant Governor, so many directions we can go here. Let's start with this progressive fight versus some of the conservative Democrats out there. Just a simple first question. Do you anticipate seeing some changes in that regard on the Senate side? We hear this a lot every cycle, but something seems to be building this cycle. A little bit different. Well, I think there, I think there are some uh, races that have uh, progressives versus more conservative Democrats. Right. Uh, I would caution, though, that um, the people who are heading up progressive campaigns, not the candidates necessarily, but people that are pushing for these changes, don't really understand places like Deming, New Mexico, and Grants, and other, uh, and where the, uh, and some of these people hedge their bets this time, should I say. Mm -hmm. uh, a good example is John Arthur Smith's bill that he proposed for the Early Childhood mm -hmm. Trust Fund. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a, seen as a compromise for going into the permanent fund, mm -hmm. and uh, it was very popular, very bipartisan. Um, and he lives where the bulk of the votes are. So we'll see how that, his opponent, I think, lives in Lordsburg. Mm -hmm. So I think there, um, there are people who've stepped up to the plate, and, but I think there's a lot of unknowns. We won't really know the lay of the land until March 10th when right. people actually have to hand in their papers and file. There you go. And, the, and the second part of that is, mm -hmm. is there's a lot of unknowns um, in the general election presidential year about uh, how people will be voting. So yeah. I think there's challenges. I think it's going to be an exciting year. Yeah. Um, and I think incumbents are hard to beat. Mm -hmm. In our state, certainly, you know about this, certainly, too. But is there a profile? Really, I got beat as an incumbent. That's so. true, too. That's true. I take that back. <laughs> is, there a, is there a profile we have that we can look at as a Democrat who can unseat 
a progressive who can unseat a, a conservative Democrat. Do we have any recent models of this working? Well, I'm sure they'll tell you they, that they will. The problem is the problem is this: is that look, the, the lieutenant governor said it best. You're not going to go in a Deming and that district where the mainstay of votes is in Deming, New Mexico, and beat John Arthur Smith, who's done a great job representing the population of Deming. Now, whether progressives like it or conservatives like it, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. You know, you go to places like Deming, they're very middle of the road Americans down there, right? Mm -hmm. They're very, you know, they got, they, got, they got lots of issues across party lines, right? They got things down there that they're, they probably have a different stance on border, border security in Deming, New Mexico than progressives in Santa Fe do, right. but they may be right in line with other issues back and forth. And so I think if you're going to look at unseating any of these incumbents, I wouldn't look at who's given the money. I mean, even though it's clear that a lot of this money is coming from out of state, mm -hmm. I wouldn't look at any of that. You've got to look at the quality of the candidate, right? Mm -hmm. And you got to look at where the candidate resides. You could have a really good candidate. If they live in Lordsburg and that's 1% of the district, I'm just telling you, when you get to rule in New Mexico, as the lieutenant governor can tell you, not only not only is there party line fights, but the party line fights are probably usurped by the territorial fights of the community. Mm -hmm. If you're in Roswell, you're not giving up a legislator that lives in the community of Roswell to Artesia. I don't care what party it is. I mean, you're going to keep that that seat in the city of Roswell. And so, you know, that's going to be the challenge. And I think getting out to these communities mm -hmm. and finding individuals that can have a resume, especially when you get out of Albuquerque, right? Trying to find someone in Deming that's going to have a resume like John Arthur Smith's or even in Las Cruces like Mary Kay Papin or Joseph Cervantes that you can say, hey, look, we're going to we're going to beat these guys with progressive candidates. Right. And here's what they've done. They just moved back two years ago or, you know, they're new to the district. It just it's really, really difficult. Interesting points there. Senator, I'm interested in the other side of the situation, however. I, my sense is Republicans are feeling actually a little bit of momentum here. I want to talk about the Republican side here for a second. Meaning they can hitch some of their wagons to red flag gun laws. There's a lot of things that were passed that is getting co some coalescing of, of folks together here. The Democrats mm -hmm. during the session certainly handed the Republicans three or four items mm -hmm. to to uh, stand on. Uh, what one of the things that most people probably didn't even notice is Representative Jane uh, Paldrell Culbert is quiet, mm -hmm. low key, doesn't stands firmly, but doesn't. And the first words out of her mouth at the close of the session is, "We're declaring war." That's right. And when Jane does something like that, then then you know everybody else is coming along. Right. I, I think that it, the thing to me that'll be most interesting about the Republicans is, first of all, there are a lot of candidates out there. I, I'm just familiar with Albuquerque mm -hmm. uh, and the candidates running. There are a lot of candidates. Mm -hmm. S uh, some of them I know, some of them I don't. Some of them are really good and some maybe a little too new. We, sure. We'll have to see. Mm -hmm. And there again, it's the district as to what. The district I'm watching the closest mm -hmm. is Senator Bill Payne is not running for re-election. Right yep. uh, retired Navy Admiral, used to be two-star general, I mean two-star admiral, used to be the top Navy SEAL in the country while we were in this legislature together. Um, his district holds a large portion of the House district that was held by Representative Jimmy Hall. And the Democrats went in, a woman, and took that seat over what we called Republican heaven. I mean, that was one of the biggest surprises of the entire election season two years ago. So is there enough of that district? And right now, it's my understanding there are three R's and three D's running. So there'll be a primary, and then we'll have the general election. I know four of the six, and 
three of them were, uh, are pretty formidable candidates. Mm -hmm. So it mm -hmm. would be, the Republicans, I think, they just got so tired of what they perceive as being stomped on, particularly in the House, yeah. is, and they did it once. They did it once. They took the House, and you never, it's been close enough, period, mm -hmm. they've not forgotten having a, uh, Don Tripp mm -hmm. as the Speaker. So I think the energy is very high. Mm -hmm. Again, like you said, mm -hmm. uh, nationally, it'll be very interesting. Right. And to me, it's more determined on who the Democrats choose to run as president uh, and who other uh, supporters of other candidates, who stays home I see. and doesn't, doesn't go out and vote. So like the Lieutenant Governor said, it's going to be a fun year. Serge, pick up on that. I'm glad you brought us to the national influence of yeah. this. Um, there's money that the Trump people are going to spend here. They feel yep. like the state is flippable. Yes. Uh, Democrats are going to obviously not, you know, let that just happen. They're going to have their own fight. What's your sense of how much that might impact the local things here? Are there, is there a coattail effect for either side? Again, depending on who the Democratic nominee is. But Yeah, I mean, I have to imagine there will be, but mm -hmm. I, I'm, you know, not nearly as well versed in these matters as my colleagues today, but mm -hmm. I'm really skeptical of this idea of um, that New Mexico is flippable mm -hmm. or that New Mexico is going to be a fertile ground for any of the the, the rhetoric coming out of uh, the Trump campaign mm -hmm. and and generally. And you know, I haven't been in Mexico that long, but I do know it's it's its own special kind of place. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not convinced that a lot of the stuff happening nationally will resonate here or have effects here. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm, I'm really skeptical of sort of this idea of, oh yeah, New Mexico is a place that uh, we can go in and do massive change, I think. So, um, so I have been you know, hearing that and not convinced that we're gonna see much, but I do, I mean, obviously, the more exciting that national race is, the more people go out to the polls. I think and part, of that, that. part of that about the national talk in New Mexico is just mm -hmm. the, the price of is just dollars, the value of money, right? right? I mean, you spend, you go to California and spend 35 million bucks and you're not even gonna get on, you know, statewide TV. You come to New Mexico and drop $4 million and you could, you could have a bump, you could make a change. You know, I think, um, I think it's gonna be interesting. I think, look, the thing we're not talking about also, uh, as Republicans are talking about making this move uh, trying to think that there's an opportunity with some of the legislation that's been out there, and there is. I mean, look, you know, you can say what you want about progressives, liberals, conservatives, Republicans, doesn't matter. We're pretty pro-gun state. I mean, we're pretty, we're pretty, you know, I mean, that's one thing that crosses the party lines in this state. And so, but what we have seen over the years is that single issues don't really move the needle so much. I mean, you get a little bump, it'll affect a swing state, a swing seat somewhere. But you know, the thing that no one's talking about in New Mexico right now is the complete infighting in the Republican Party that's going on right now. I mean, we got we got a party that's got you know we got a whole party with a a, a, a party chairman that mm -hmm. is in complete disarray with legislators. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got congressional candidates going at each other. Like you know, we've got the chairman picking folks that they're for and his staff picking people they're for in primaries. We've got them weighing in in legislative races. Now, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I was part of the Dendal time when we did weigh in, and, and quite frankly, I you know, I think, it's, right, I think it's right. I think it's well, but I think it's the you know, it's it's kind of the the, the, the you know the, the golden rule. He with the gold rules, right. but I think the the dissension comes from it's not so much one of the things that Dendal did, whether you liked him or didn't like him, is that Dendal did what Dendal did, and when you confronted him, he'd look at you and go, yeah, 
That's right, we're going to take you out. Gotcha. Now we've got folks in the Republican Party that are like, they're deep in a race, and then they get called on, and they're like, what? How dare you? How dare you attack me personally? You're the bad person. And so there's this whole deflection thing that's really causing consternation. While all that's happening and all that arguing among Republicans going on, I have noticed that in those some of those vulnerable heights districts that we that Democrats won in 2018, the Republicans have recruited women to mm -hmm. run for those offices. Mm -hmm. Younger women, some Hispanic women, right. in races like where Marion Matthews just got uh, appointed in Bill Tallman's race in the state mm -hmm. Senate. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. It, it, the, Melanie Stansberry could be vulnerable if there's a good recruit there. Sure. And in do. northern New Mexico, they have three yep. or four Republican women running for Ben Rice congressional right. seat. Yeah, right. So somebody is out there the south, recruiting, the running, you know, recruiting. I mean, running. Republicans, like, haven't got the message yet. Republicans got the message mm -hmm. that well, women are, right. you yes. know, like, so we did it, like can be successful candidates, can be successful candidates. Oh, Republicans. Been put together and they're, they are recruiting conservative women. Right. They, they don't exclude Democrats, but they're recruiting conservative women and they are really on the ball. Yeah. Uh, and I, would say, I would say don't, you know, the Jimmy Hall race, I think is, it's a very conservative district it is. But when you looked at that campaign and I served with Jimmy and Jimmy was a great guy. I mean, I just, I have the fleeting image of the Facebook ad commercial that he did where he was riding around in his hover around wheelchair talking about, with his helmet on talking about going door to door and the Democrat that was running against him was out running around, very vibrant, very young. I, I just, I'm not sure that it wasn't, I'm not sure that it has a Democrat or Republican flavor. I think Republicans can win it. I just think you can't win it with someone that's, you know, very much older, you know, white males when you got good young female women running I, I mean I, I mean this is this is this is the time and yeah. you know I think Mary it's Kay Papen, except for Mary mm -hmm. Kay Papen when yeah. you find out that at 86 and 87 she drives the Audubon every year <laughs> you think that. maybe I don't want to mess with her yeah, well, Mary, <laughs> Kay, Mary, Kay, Mary Kay Papen yeah. isn't going around and doing yeah. commercials in a wheelchair yeah, and her right. hover around <laughs> going door to door Mary Kay Papen is probably doing judo classes that lady is I had no idea. oh yeah she's the wow. real deal driver yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. she still does that she in France does every year. I don't know how anybody I don't know how you I don't know how that anybody found a candidate especially in a primary to run against Mary Kay Papen. I mean I can just see them hey we got a great candidate you're going to do great here's this lady there's no way yeah. I'll have to leave it there and what a place to leave it but there will be more to report as soon as March 7th which the lieutenant governor just mentioned March 10th, March 10th rather yeah. thank you when both Five parties hold their pre-primary conventions exactly yeah, right. right now after the break we sit down with new executive director of the state ethics commission then this group is back to talk about the backlog facing the New Mexico Court of Appeals. Hopefully by now you've had a chance to check out some of our Your NM Gov coverage. Started during the legislative session this year. This is a joint project we've undertaken with KUNM Radio and the Santa Fe Reporter. Our goal is to really focus in on good government issues. These can be things like transparency and accountability and open government. And this week uh, is no different. We've got a great section segment for you coming up here where our senior producer, Matt Grubb, sits down with the first and only executive director for the state's newly formed Ethics Commission. Jeremy Ferris is his name, and he was in studio this week to talk about what exactly the commission is up to in these early days. They just started off at the very beginning of the year. 
talk about what the group is doing, how you can keep track of it all, and especially what it takes and how to file a complaint if you see wrongdoing in government. Here's that interview. What exactly does good government look like? In practice, that's what the New Mexico Ethics Commission determines. The new body opened its doors this year after voters overwhelmingly approved the creation of the watchdog agency. It was decades in the making, but already has had to fight for its existence as lawmakers were slow to approve what the commission considered to be full funding for its first full year. Now what's ahead? NMIF producer Matt Grubbs asked Executive Director Jeremy Ferris to come in for a conversation. Jeremy Ferris, thanks for coming in. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's good to talk about the Ethics Commission. Absolutely. Well, let's um, do some of the nuts and bolts stuff that we've been talking about. Um, the Ethics Commission is seven commissioners. Um, just explain, if you would, sort of how they find these positions and, and how they're selected. Sure. So the governor appoints the chair. The chair has to be a retired judge. Um, then the, the legislature appoints four other commissioners. Um, the, the leadership in both the, the Senate and the House on both, both sides of the aisle, both appoint a commissioner. So under the statute, the four legislatively appointed commissioners then appoint the final two commissioners. The, the commission has three Democratic appointees, three Republican appointees, and one independent. Okay. And that's important because a quorum for any commission action um, has to be conducted by the consent of two Democrats and, and two Republicans. That's part of what keeps commission action independent. Can you explain to me sort of why an ethics commission is important for a healthy state government? New Mexico's a little late to, to the game um, with, with the development and creation of, of an ethics commission. Um, but in this instance, New Mexico's late mover status, I think, is, puts it in a strong position. New Mexico was able to learn from a lot of the early missteps in, in other states with the, the structure of an ethics commission. So one thing that New Mexico did, which was, which was central, was doing this by, con by constitutional amendment. The, the ethics commission is cemented into the constitution, so it can't be undone by statute or by the governor's executive order, as it maybe can in other states. And that's the foundation of the commission's independence. Um, the statute is really well thought out as well, um, particularly with respect to the appointment of the commissioners. You know, they're appointed by different branches of government, by themselves. Um, the, the appointment structure ensures that neither the governor nor the legislature nor either branch or party in the legislature can ever control the commission. Is there um, a feeling um, amongst the commissioners and yourself as to um, how this should operate? I mean, are you sort of crusading looking for corruption like Elliot Ness? Are you um, sort of waiting for folks to file requests or complaints? Um, how does this work best and how is it working now? So the, the crusading isn't beginning yet. I mean, the, the first thing the commission had to do because our jurisdiction for the administrative complaints began on January the 1st. So the very first thing the commission had to do was, was set up the rules of procedure um, and the, the basic institutional capacity to, to handle administrative complaints that may be filed with the commission. Um, so that, that's kind of like a junior varsity court system where a complainant can file an administrative complaint against a respondent. Under the statute, the executive director ensures that the complaint is within 
the jurisdiction of the agency. If it is, the general counsel will determine after an investigation if there's probable cause. If there is probable cause to support the complaint, at that point, the complaint and all the materials are no longer confidential. They're made public and the case is assigned to a hearing officer. Um, the commission has a, a contract with former Supreme Court Justice Ed Chavez to, to, to serve as a hearing officer. And any, any appeals from a hearing go to the full commission. So that's kind of like the, the junior varsity court system okay. um, that, you know, and many, many administrative agencies have adjudicatory arms. Um, in another way, the commission is also authorized to function as a kind of junior varsity attorney general for the statutes that are, that are within the commission's jurisdiction and the anti-donation clause of the Constitution, the one constitutional provision for which the commission has jurisdiction. And what I mean by that is the, the Ethics Commission is authorized to file civil court actions. So it's, it's no, in, that, in that posture, it wouldn't be complainant versus respondent in the State Ethics Commission. It would be State Ethics Commission as the plaintiff versus a defendant in state court. Okay. And so that's, that, that might get to the, the Elliott Ness crusading um, comment that, that you made. But for that, the commission needs to put together a policy um, which will guide determinations from an initial assessment to an investigation to the commission's authorization of a civil court action. And that's important because this, this can never be designed in a way to where it could be in power to be a political witch hunt in anybody's hands. So the, we, we need to put all of the policies and all of the rules and, and the regulations and the, and the administrative code to ensure that the commission's decisions are always ones that, that are based on, on the facts, on the investigation, and, and are, are politically motivated. Um, and so the, the commission still has to do that policy-making piece before it, it, it can properly think about filing civil court actions. But that's part of the, the institution building that the commission has to do. Okay. Um, I want to get to sort of a series of firsts for the commission. Um, one of them is, though, that you, you have filed um, in a court case uh, involving um, former Secretary of Taxation and Revenue, Demesia Padilla, um, asking uh, an appellate court to, is it reinstate some of the charges that were dismissed? Not, not precisely. Okay. So, um, Ms. Padilla's case, part, part of the, the counts in the Attorney General's se second amended criminal information are pending appeal with the Court of Appeals. And those, those counts are counts in which the state brought um, criminal enforcement actions for a certain provision of the Governmental Conduct Act under okay. 10, Section 1016.3. Um, in the district court, the district court held that those provisions of the Governmental Conduct Act are not enforceable. They're not criminally enforceable. And, um, and Ms. Padilla has, has, has argued in her papers that, her attorneys have argued, that they're not enforceable because they're impermissibly vague. The, the language in that part of the statute, according to, to Ms. Padilla, is that, and, 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 the, court, and the court so found, um, the district court so found, was that the, the language is too vague to be constitutionally enforceable. And um, the judge dismissed those accounts and um, the Attorney General appealed that dismissal and it's now pending in the Court of Appeals. Um, Ms. Padilla's case is the fourth in a line of cases about that particular provision of the Governmental Conduct Act, 1016.3. And all of those cases are currently pending in the Court of Appeals. What the Ethics Commission did um, was file a motion 
for leave to participate as an amicus curiae, as a friend of the court. And the Ethics Commission filed an amicus brief in which the commission argued um, that that provision of the Governmental Conduct Act creates real enforceable duties. That provision of the Governmental Conduct Act applies to legislators, state employees, public employees, and state officials and public officials. Um, and it's, it prohibits those, those persons, legislators, public officials, public employees, from using the resources of public office to pursue a, a private interest only, okay. or from abusing their office while in per public service, or from not disclosing conflicts of interest. Um, the Ethics Commission believes that that provision in the Governmental Conduct Act is, is really central. It's one of the few that applies to legislators, and it's the Ethics Commission's view that the language in that statute creates real enforceable duties under the Governmental Conduct Act, and they're not so vague as to be unenforceable. You've uh, also issued your first advisory opinion. Um, this is a, a case in which someone came to you, um, and at least my understanding of the advisory opinion is that um, the commission found that it needs um, some specificity um, when it's getting uh, when it's getting asked um, to issue an advisory opinion on, on some things. Can you explain that a little bit to me? Right. That's that, that's almost right, Matt. Okay. So the, the um, <laughs> you tell which one of us is the attorney. Right? You, you are right that that. Um, requesters for advisory opinions. They have to be within the jurisdiction of the commission. Not just anyone can, can request an advisory opinion of the, of the commission. We don't provide free legal advice to everybody. Right. But um, legislators, state employees, candidates, lobbyists, lobbyist employers, those that are subject to the procurement code, those that are, are bidding on, on invitations to bid or responding to requests for proposals, that universe of people. Um, which is about 45 to 50,000 people within, okay. within the commission's jurisdiction. Anyone in that universe can request um, an advisory opinion from the commission. Um, and the, the commission will issue advisory opinions as to whether or not a specific kind of the, the factual predicates in the request violate you know, a, a law that the request asks about. So for the, the, first, the first request asked, whether a state employee who's working for the state, if that state employee is also receiving a salary from a, a political organization or a political campaign committee, um, does the receipt of that salary violate, and the request kind of listed a, a number of acts that the commission has jurisdiction over, does it violate the Governmental Conduct Act, does it violate the GIFT Act, Financial Disclosure Act, et cetera? Just that, the, the mere fact of a state employee receiving a salary from a political campaign, that alone, those, those facts alone don't establish a violation of the law, um, what was the, more or less the answer that the advisory opinion gave. The, the abandonment of duty statute that the state has contemplates that state employees can have other jobs. Um, and that doesn't change if the other job is working for a campaign committee. So for example, um, there's no violation if a state employee in the evening, you know, does graphic design work for a political campaign. That's not a violation of the law. Um, and so the, the, the advisory opinion kind of rightly answered the question, no, it's, you know, that those mere facts don't, don't establish a violation of the law. The, the advisory opinion did point out um, provisions 
of the laws that might be implicated. I mean, it, it can't be the case that um, a state employee uses the resources in their state office to, to work for a political campaign committee right. while, the, while they're at work, um, nor can um, a state employee take some action in exchange for, you know, payment from a, an official action in exchange for payment from a, a political campaign committee. But that's just kind of signaling, like, the, the context, the legal context in which the question is situated. Um, but what, what's really going on is that the commission will focus very clearly on what the request is and what the factual um, postulates in the request are. And, and, the, and the, the commission's answers are going to be tailored to specifically what the question is. The, the commission can't be in the business of guessing at what the requester might be getting at from what's going on, what, what perhaps is going on in, in, in newspaper reports. Sure. The, the, the commission's opinions are going to be tailored to the, the facts that are presented in the request. We're almost out of time. I, I will ask you to stick around and talk with us afterwards, and we'll put it up online, um, about sort of this idea of taking a look at state official salaries, things like that. Um, but the last thing I want to get to um, for our on-air part is, um, Talking about the, the complaint that you received, I know that there's a system in place that, that protects the people who file those complaints. Um, one of the things that I saw as I looked at the Ethics Commission's website is um, you are creating a system through which people can actually follow their complaints in a confidential manner. Um, you're, you've created a system by which they can file a complaint online already. Um, the, the complaint that you've gotten, what is the process for that um, as, it, as it moves forward? So for, for any complaint that we receive, um, all, all the materials and the decisions that relate to complaints are confidential up until the point the general counsel makes a probable cause determination and the, the complaint is um, kind of given over to a hearing officer for a hearing. But for any complaint, um, when a complaint's filed, the respondent has an opportunity to respond, to file a motion to dismiss for lack of jurisdiction or, or another appropriate motion. The respondent can, can have an attorney, um, so, as can the complainant. Um, the, all of those materials, the executive director under the statute first reviews to determine if there's jurisdiction. If there's jurisdiction for the complaint, then the general counsel begins an investigation to, into the facts through interviews, we can go and ask for a subpoena. Um, if the complaint is supported by probable cause, if the general counsel believes that there's enough in it to, to think that the complaint's supported by probable cause, then it goes over to a hearing. There will be a public hearing. Um, and then from a public hearing, there's an appeal to the full commission. That's, that's the, rough, the rough procedure for, for complaints. Um, we are building an, an online electronic filing system, case management system. Um, that'll be fully operational later, later this fiscal year, later this summer. But um, the rules of procedure are in place there in the New Mexico Administrative Code 1.8.3, and that's, that's what governs the, the adjudication of complaints. Okay. Well, Jeremy Ferris, thanks for coming in and spending some time with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right, time now to head back to the line. We've got two topics for you here back to back. The first is a look at the backlog of court cases for the Court of Appeals here in New Mexico. This is the focus of an article this week from the Searchlight New Mexico group, uh, their website. You could check that out. We encourage you to do that. It's a great story. 
And so the group dives into what exactly that means and how it rolls over into other courts and just why there is such a backlog, a continued backlog in our court system here in New Mexico, as well as some ideas of what to do about it. Then lastly, taking a look at homelessness, not a new problem for sure, but it is a hot button one here in Albuquerque. We've talked about it a lot with the talk of a new shelter somewhere here on the west side of Albuquerque and lots of debate about where exactly it should go, exactly how it should function. But Las Cruces has been in the news lately for some of their homelessness programs as well as Santa Fe. So the group talks a little bit about all of those and as well as the overarching reasons behind some of the homeless problem we have in New Mexico and what it'll take to actually turn the tide. So here we are back to the line. Hope you enjoy. In a story called Full Court Press, Ike Sweatlitz of the Searchlight New Mexico uh, website reports the state's Court of Appeals has a massive backlog of cases, at least 450 of them as we stand. The old saying goes, justice delayed is justice denied. Ike highlighted a criminal appeal that has been filed 10 months earlier with zero action. That means the appellant is in prison just waiting for the paperwork to get moving. And Serge, it's a very disturbing story about how things are, this, many prongs why this is happening. Yeah. But first of all, what is the Court of Appeals, what do they handle for folks who are not tied up in the legal world? What, what exactly do they do there? Sure, so the Court of Appeals is not, it's not a trial court mm -hmm. where you, know, you go and raise objections and put on evidence. The, ideally, it's, the idea is that the Court of Appeals addresses whether the trial court or a lower court of some sort or administrative body mm -hmm. got the law wrong. Uh -huh. So they, they do what we lawyers like to, at the law school anyway, think of as the real lawyering, the, you know, the, the policy part of lawyering and the gotcha. thoughtful of what does the law say, what does it actually mean, how does it apply to this case? Mm -hmm. And so it's a real important body to shape the way we interpret the laws that we have in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. And you know, their, their job is to really make sure that there's clarity on important issues and address if something keeps coming up to say, okay, we need to right. weigh in on this. The clear takeaway was money is a big factor. There's just not enough money in it. Is it, is it just that or is it more than money that's, that's causing this problem, these backlogs? I mean, money is obviously a huge part, right? The, mm -hmm. They're understaffed. They could probably use a few more judges. Um, mm -hmm. But there's also more cases being filed, uh -huh. right? We, uh, far be it for me to suggest that lawyers are doing anything wrong ever, but uh, but we you know not we're seeing that went through your class exactly <laughs> not in mine. But uh, we you know there's the 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 backlog that they have right. They don't, there's not enough people to deal with what they currently have, gotcha. but there's also more stuff coming down than 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 has historically been coming down the down the road, and so obviously that's going to lead to tough choices, and we either have to make it up on the front end or the mm -hmm. back end or somewhere. Mm -hmm. Senator Snyder, it was interesting to read this in that the idea that it's kind of a behind the scenes thing a lot of us are just not privy to. It's very interesting to kind of read this, but it seems clear staff issues are a big part of it and connected to the money issue. How do we fix something like that? It just seems very difficult when you read this from the outside looking in. If you're not going to have the money, how do you fix the staff problems and how do you fix the you know, other problems that follow along? When, when I was in, money is clearly a problem. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, it goes back to when I was in the legislature, I remember in 2001 and 2002, there was a great discussion mm -hmm. about the courts had been given minimal amounts of money. They were so far behind. Right. Education had been given tremendous increases. Judges had not even been given salary increases. And so, 
and that means if the judges aren't getting them, your staff probably isn't either. Mm -hmm. So it was it it's a problem that's building on its history. Mm -hmm. I do know there was a request put in. Uh, what I don't know, because I haven't seen the final version of House Bill Two, is whether there was a request put in for additional money for the courts. So hopefully. This, the appeals court is one that gets it. Mm -hmm. The thing that fascinated me is, and I'm not an attorney, is the calendaring process. Right. Is that that's how you get determined that you're ready to go before and be considered. Mm -hmm. And as I recall, they took some of the staff who was doing the calendaring to move into other areas, so that put them even further behind. Right. So I think you're absolutely right. We need a couple more judges, would mm -hmm. be my suggestion. And certainly, you need more staff. You shouldn't be taking staff from doing one important job mm -hmm. and putting them in another position. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think it's time we bit the bullet, the, we being the legislature, right. and said, if we're going to have a fair judicial system, we have to support them. And I think that's what mm -hmm. they need to do. Mm -hmm. you know, Lieutenant Governor, what the Senator just described, it only took a mere matter of months for this thing to fall off the end of the table once that switching around of staff mm -hmm. from the front end of calendaring handle, handling like 900 appeals a year when you really think about that that's amazing kind of splitting them between the easy ones and the hard ones and then moving that staff to deal with the judges on the hard ones it left the front end of the pipeline completely vulnerable and anyone could have seen this coming it seems to me but somehow it just didn't get dealt with what's your sense of why we, did, we haven't gotten an well, after this yeah, you know I think when we talk about the judges themselves think of the turnover we've had in judges and um, I personally know some judges who got those jobs and then were surprised what the job really was oh no kidding which is reading and listening to oral arguments and uh, it's not so much you know they don't think about it they have to it's really a lot of on-the-job training unless mm -hmm. they've spent a lot of time mm -hmm. at the appeals court and I don't know that we're getting all the best quality people because when you think about what's happened to the judicial right. that I think is really important is first of all the pay scale has been low compared to states around us as well as to the private sector right. so good lawyers in the private sector who are well respected by their peers who are people that um, that you want to apply for judge, they may look at that and say, well, I'm not going to do it. But the other thing is, mm -hmm. we have, including the Trump administration, but also the previous governor, disparaging the judiciary. Mm -hmm. If you're a, a well-respected attorney in the private sector, mm -hmm. and you might want to be a judge, but you think, who needs it? Because the judiciary has been subject to attacks um, and, and that's actually ramping up right now, right. That subject to attacks. Mm -hmm. And um, it's my understanding from talking to some of the people in the legal community, and Serge would know more about this, but mm -hmm. they're opting out for these memorandums as opposed to formal opinions, which then doesn't give lawyers what they need, which is established law to guide lawyers through, mm -hmm. you know, making law in New Mexico. Right. And you said it best at the beginning, the people who can whether the delays, it benefits them. Right. The people who need That's right. opinions and need it to move ahead, right. maybe going to the Supreme Court, those are the people, years go by, right. people forget, mm. you know, things mm. can happen. So I think there's um, multiple factors, including judicial salaries and staff salaries, mm -hmm. but I think there's a lot of things in the judi judiciary 
um, the previous governor didn't want to fund the judiciary, right? right. I, and I hear and that, that put yeah. us yeah. in you know in more dire circumstances. That's right. Dan, the upshot for uh, victims of the system, if you really want to think about it that way, it, it's a, a real difficulty. You know, the story uh, in Searchlight opened with a, the case of a young man. Uh, Lee County. Lee, in Lee County, exactly. You know, he's been in jail for 10 months waiting for a decision on his appeal for a murder charge. Just an incredible lack of inertia, of movement to get some things going. And it goes down from there. I mean, anything, as Serge mentioned, you can appeal a lot of different things out there that you've got to have some clarity on fairly quickly to get your life moving again. You can't wait, so there's you know. 10, there's 10 judges. Mm -hmm. If there's 450 backlog cases, sounds like they should each take 45. Right. You might have to work weekends, might have to work a little overtime. You know, in the, in, in, in the real world, you know, when you're not working as a judge that gets to come in, sit at the bench, and then mm -hmm. dictate everything to the staff, you, you got to do the job. You got to get the job done. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you take the job as a, and you say, well, I didn't understand how all of this reading and all the stuff that goes with it, mm -hmm. it's just, it's an, it's an insane process. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I got to agree. I mean, these cases are unbelievably important because these are people who are saying, I was wrong. That's I right. was wronged by the system. That's right. And so if we can't yeah. figure out a way to address this. Now, I will also say there's got to be some, you know, look, you know, maybe I'm not the right guy for the job, but, you know, have, has anybody approached the law school? Have we divided these cases into hard and easy and said, hey, look, can we have the law school go through, you know, utilize some of these students to go through some of the easy cases and let's give us some first glance, you know, a prima facie look at this stuff that we can turn around and say, you know, now let's go ahead and read. Is that constitutional? Would that work, something like that? And, and uh, I mean, it's, a good, it's a great idea. It's interesting, uh, but does it w work in the real legal world? I don't. I don't know about the constitutional legality yeah. of that. I mean, I know it would be uh, probably controversial to have you know law students weighing in on okay. uh, on on appellate matters. Well, especially, so, but especially when you've got. A, there's another element to what happens to judges. Mm -hmm. They get appointed, right. and they have to run. Well, they go it. through judicial selection, right. and many times judges are not really political people. They have to become political people. And then they're running. Of course, they can't talk about anything they may have to rule on. That's right. And um, they don't realize what it, and then they have to, they're judging, mm -hmm. they're running, they're going to have to read their opinions at night, they're going to have to figure mm -hmm. out that whole schedule. Here, here, here's what gets me. There are a lot of people out there, I have to imagine, are fully innocent. Just absolutely fully innocent, and they know it. Well, the That's why they've the appealed. Tell you that. I you mean, know, right? Exactly. If, if, we, if it was a perfect world, mm -hmm. right? The the number. What's the sort you would know? I mean, there's a percentage out there that you could say, look, if you have a hundred right. cases, four percent right. of them are going to be wrong, right? That's there's right. there. I mean, just just human nature plays in. So, I mean, just without any tilting of the scales, four percent. So if you look at that 450 backlog, right. you're talking 12 people. There's 12 or 13 people without us even yeah. talking about yeah. it that are in the wrong place right. for the wrong things, and they're still sitting there. That's right. That's right. You know, the, that idea, is it, by the way, on, on one, another one of Dan's points, is it a panel that looks at these things? Can you actually divvy these things up individually, or how does yeah, that? So they divide, uh, as I understand it, they divide, you know, each case gets assigned to a, certain, a particular judge, and, yeah. and they are all assigned, you know, to do X number of cases. I think right now they're trying to do four cases a month, which sounds like easy work if you can get it, but it's actually, you know, it's challenging to do that because of all the, the reading, the understanding of law, the research, and the writing of these opinions. Okay. And so, and you know, it's, it's apportioned out per judge, um, but some of the judges have more experience. Well, and remember also, and you, you, you have the, the, the law school, yeah, you know, yeah. you, have these, you have the students that apply for 
uh, working for the judges. Mm -hmm. um, it's not an internship. It is an internship, but it's called something else. When you clerkship, yeah, yeah, they, clerk, they get the clerkship. That's, the and th that's who's the. I mean, that's theoretically who's looking at this stuff first. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I don't know why we couldn't be taking, you know, our second and third year law school students and saying, look, let's take. We've divided them into easy and hard. Mm -hmm. Let's work and let's give these guys some real time case experience working on the easy stuff. Mm -hmm. But but I mean, and, and, and I'm not saying that we should mandate that, right? We got to get with the law school and say, does this work? I mean, I would say this, and you know, all deference to my friend Serge, mm -hmm. who I think is a great guy, mm -hmm. and I appreciate what he does. You know, in New Mexico, we also have a state-funded law school. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's not like we're telling people, hey, all this private money came in and runs the law school, and you're not telling us what to do. We have a state-funded law school. So, I mean, I think there's an opportunity that we could be at the leading edge and say, look, if you idea. come here, you're going to get more more time before you even get to clerk for someone. You're going to get to work on real cases, you know, your second year of law school. The other thing, real this quick. is down all the way down the system. Right. You know, That's starting right. at Metro, yeah. District, mm -hmm. and in small communities, they're not even some attorneys in really small communities. Oh, wow. And people have to travel, and but they have to have judges from around those communities. My daughter got a speeding so ticket in Encino. In, in, uh, in uh, no, not Encino, over by Moriarty. Um, Estancia. And we, she said she didn't speed. She did, by the way, but she claimed <laughs> she didn't. And uh, so we went to the hearing. The judge didn't have hours until starting. It started at 5.30 p.m. Oh, wow. So we were scheduled like at 7 o'clock. Funny thing, I know we got to go. Funny thing was she gets up there, the judge says to her, he comes in, he has camouflaged pants on and a T-shirt. He ran like the hardware store. And he says, he says to my, I told my dad, I said, Hannah, just plead no contest. And you've never had a ticket before. So she gets up there and the judge says, no contest. She goes, guilty. And he goes, no, I think you mean no contest. Guilty. And she starts sweating. And the judge goes, hold on a second. And my daughter goes, guilty. And I yell from the back, no contest. Hannah. Guilty. And the judge was like, let's take a break for a second. And I was like, I got so nervous. I didn't know what to say. This is why the appeals court, court of appeals is asking for $6.8 mil, more million dollars to yeah, solve yeah. these problems. We'll take a breather. We fill our water. Dan's going to take a breath and be back in a moment to talk about homelessness and how cities here in New Mexico are responding to it. Creating the Gateway Center, a replacement for Albuquerque's existing, existing shelter on the city's far west side, has been approved. Now the big question, where to put it? As, as Albuquerque grapples with NIMBY, not in my backyard opposition as you know it, Santa Fe also deals with people experiencing homelessness. Las Cruces, Farmington, Taos, other New Mexico cities are also dealing with how to best address homelessness. And Diane, do you think New Mexico cities are doing an adequate job as, as you've been reading up for this segment? What's your sense overall how the bigger cities are handling homelessness uh, no, here? No, I don't think so. I, w I was very impressed with the article uh, that c talked about what Santa Fe is doing. Mm -hmm. They are using a program called Built for Zero, mm -hmm. which has been done. And there's a, there are several uh, states, cities in different states, mm -hmm. that have gotten their, their populations down to, to zero right. or functionally zero. And what they do is they divide it up. You have the uh, continuously homeless, the military homeless, mm -hmm. other uh, divisions, and they take each segment and solve that problem first. Instead of blanketly spreading all their resources, they solve a problem at a time. Mm -hmm. And Santa Fe started with their military, and they are now at what they call functionally zero, a homeless military. And that impressed me very much. I was very concerned about this continuous haranguing about where the place is going to be in Albuquerque. I mean, we spent more time talking about uh, that, uh, where it's going to be located right. rather than 
getting it built, mm -hmm. uh, designed, built, and in moving forward. And I understand NIMBY, and in my neighborhood doesn't happen to be one of the ones suggested, mm -hmm. but, but I still think if we look at the big picture, we're wasting so much time at doing what we need to be doing. Mm -hmm. And it seems like we're doing such shotgun attacks to the right. issue right. that we're not really getting things focused. Interesting point there, Serge. You know, we found money in the legislature for right. practice fields, for other things, but we couldn't, we can only come up with 50 grand out of the $14 million ask mm -hmm. uh, for the homeless shelter here. We're gonna press on with this anyway. The city's got a plan, they'll go back next year and ask for the remainder. Mm -hmm. But your sense of it, how you see the city approaching this now and how, how we're gonna get out of this mess. Well, I mean, I, I love that the city has, you know, made this a priority and Mayor Keller has said, okay, I'm gonna, mm -hmm. you know, try to try to jump on this. Um, but saying, you know, we need X millions of dollars for a shelter, that's not the cure-all either, right? Mm -hmm. There's there's so many ways that people are homeless and so many things that we need to address. I mean, I am a housing first guy, right? Mm -hmm. it, the, ones, the best solution to homelessness is to get someone a home. Mm -hmm. But uh, simply saying, let's build one big, you know, gateway, structure in Albuquerque. I love it. The idea of let's put all these resources together, but it's easy to say, well, we did that, so now we don't have to worry about, you know, we don't have to do anything else. And mm -hmm. I'm not, certainly not convinced that's gonna, um, gonna, gonna be the thing that cures homeless, ends homelessness, you know, here in Albuquerque or anywhere in New Mexico. And um, like Diane was saying, what is really important is uh, a committed effort by everybody and that's what you know if the legislature is not saying this is important to us that's a big message right, right. we right. you know housing for veterans is I wouldn't say easy but mm -hmm. there are a lot more resources for a homeless vet than there are for a homeless person who is not a vet mm -hmm. right you have you have federal sources just that you don't have available and yes. and doing the low-hanging fruit first is great. That's what you know. Houston has done a really good job by starting there with their mm -hmm. housing for heroes, and they've 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 done the same thing. Try to work their way down. But what they've done, what we see that is effective, is a real commitment from everybody. Mm -hmm. And so if if we're saying, well, that that happens in Albuquerque, that's that's the big city's problem, and we're going to just right. put it all in this one place. That's right. That is never going to work. You're reminding me as I read this uh, Santa Fe, New Mexican story, Lieutenant Governor, that Daniel Chacon did yeah. about this fellow that was around the mayor's office for weeks and weeks and weeks, Tracy Lee, a 62-year-old homeless man, just started hanging out at City Hall. And I hear, you know, Senator's point about this. It just illustrates the difficulty on each individual basis. No one program is going to work for everybody out there, as Serge is mentioning. So are you, are you, what's your sense of how we're getting down to the grassroots here and solving this problem? Well, in, let me just say, and I think the Mayor Weber has the right ideas, you have to take this, approach them as human beings. Mm -hmm. I've been to some of these forums about location, mm -hmm. and it's amazing to me how people equate homelessness with criminality, I which see. is really not right. what happens. Right. But I wanna say, I think there's two or three things about, I think the local newspaper got it, didn't get it exactly right. Mm -hmm. The mayor had priorities, and homelessness was not the highest one. I and see. so the cri the crime package was very high on his list. Right. Um, some legislators that I've talked to, they didn't see homelessness on the Albuquerque priority list. Mm. So I'm not sure that it was entirely the legislature's fault for not giving the money. Sure. Um, and they got but, 20 million for that crime stuff you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and so. they, mm -hmm. they want to, and that is a number one issue in That's Albuquerque right. these days. Mm -hmm. Also, I think that the plan that Albuquerque has, there is not consensus around that plan. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I think one large shelter, uh, they've got a proposed site not far from the studio, mm -hmm. 
and um, that needs to be in the strategic plan for the university at some point or the growth of the cancer center. So there's some ideas out there. The county has been asked for some $7 million. I don't think they're in agreement on the 300 bed facility. Mm -hmm. So I think that the plan itself doesn't have consensus. Gotcha. The voters were not given specifics about the plan. It was for a facility. Gotcha, gotcha. And um, yeah. I, I am glad they're including neighborhoods and I'm glad they're trying to get that. Sure. But I think things are really not consolidated yet. and. They need to go, I think I heard that from legislators. They mm -hmm. didn't feel like the plan was specific and solidified. That makes sense, as, as I hear you saying it, that makes sense, yeah, I, I could see that. The public gave mm -hmm. them 14 million. Yeah. Right, And so they've right. got something to start with. Mm -hmm. So they have an opportunity, and that's what I heard from legislators was, because my first response was, like everybody's, what? You don't care about homelessness? Mm -hmm. But they do, but they said, you know, you're not ready to have our money. And we, you, you do your design, you do your, uh, to so consolidate your plan, right. as, as the tenant yeah. governor the said. The thing we can do is do a half-baked center. That's a good yes. point. Let me ask Dan this question on that very thought. The idea of taking an old hotel, which has been floated out there, and using that as a homeless uh, center, uh, uh, right by the highway and, uh, forgetting the road, uh, not Carlisle, but... Um, Manal. Manal, thank Manal. you very much. Um, sent people on, on Facebook into a tizzy. You know, it just, it just felt sort of pie in the sky, like why are we even talking about this? Is that part of the problem here? Yeah, you know? I'll just say two things, mm -hmm. I know we're, we're short on time. One is, we're not gonna address anything, we're not gonna have any impact on homelessness unless we start talking about mental health. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a, I mean we yeah. talk about homeless vets and we talk about crime, we talk, but mental health. The other thing is, mm -hmm. is that I would submit, having grown up in Cloudcroft, lived in Roswell, lived in Portales, and now live in Rio Rancho, mm -hmm. The homeless problem in Albuquerque is a statewide problem. It's not a city problem, gotcha. it's a statewide problem. The resources are here and the communities outside, this is where they send the folks to get help. Once they get in the criminal justice system or something down in Roswell, they get bused to Albuquerque mm -hmm. to get help and then they get turned out on the streets when it's over. So I think until we take a macro approach to addressing this with saying, look, and, and, and to your point about the hotel, if you believe the only thing that someone needs at night is a place to lay their head and that's gonna solve all the problems, then the hotel's a great answer. If you believe that there's far more issues with homelessness to include children, families, to include breaking the cycle, violence, all the things that, the, the drug addictions, the mental health stuff, they've gotta come up with a holistic approach that's gonna say, we're gonna get people out here. And the last thing I would say is, it's gonna take more than 300 beds. Well, that's a, a good lot point there. You buy a hotel for $15 million and it becomes like the county building. You're going to uh, spend another $15, $20, 30000000 million right. renovating. Because you have to retrofit it so the balconies yeah, can't be used to jump off and all that kind of thing. Do, yeah. And yeah. It's, it's going to be a problem. What's your number? Do you have a personal number? This is the last question of the, of the night. For how many beds? If it's not 300, how many beds do you think we really need to get going here? 3,000. 3,000? Okay. okay. I mean, there's, you know, I spend a lot of time interacting with uh, a population that is, if not homeless, precariously housed and transient. And yeah. It's way more than 300, yeah. and I'm sure I'm not seeing Interesting point there. That's all the time we have for this week. Thanks for everyone here studying up, offering their thoughts. Now, don't forget to catch up with us on social media, especially Facebook, where we often poll our Focus on New Mexico group to figure out some of the topics we do each week. All right, that's it for this week. We thank you so much for listening. And if you've got story ideas or suggestions, please reach out to us. Lots of ways you can do that. You can go to our website at newmexicoandfocus.org 
or you can send us an email at nminfocus at nmpbs.org. Probably the fastest way, though, is through any of our social media outlets. We are on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. Just search for NM in Focus and leave us a note. Give us suggestions, topics, ideas, people we should be talking to. We want to hear it all. In the meantime, have a great week, and we will talk to you again this time next week.